Some of y'all remember the movie Field of Dreams. Basic, uh, it's hard to believe, but that came out in 1989. That's, that's before some of you were born. Uh, great movie. Uh, the, if you haven't seen it, it's about an Iowa corn farmer who's about to lose his farm, has deep regrets about his relationship with his dad who's now passed away, doesn't know what to do. Here's a voice from the cornfield that says, if you build it, he will come. Somehow interprets that, interprets that to mean he needs to plow up acres of his crop and build a baseball diamond in the middle of the field, and he does. His brother-in-law, who's a banker, thinks he's gone nuts. His wife doesn't even know what's going on. They're both thinking, and all the neighbors, what, how does this solve your problem? And of course, by the end of the movie, you see what the result is. You know, the interesting thing about that field is after the movie was done being shot, that was on an actual Iowa cornfield. And the farmer who owned it kept that field. He didn't plow it under, he didn't plant there. He kept it as a baseball diamond with the farmhouse and the, and the grandstands and the little, little uh, souvenir shop. And people would come. He didn't even charge admission. For years, they would come by the tens of thousands every year. In 2011, he sold it to a bigger company. Of course, they monetized it. And so now you can, you can spend the night in the farmhouse for only $500 a night. What a deal. You can, you can even go get married on the baseball diamond if you're a big fan of the movie or of baseball. Last summer, they actually played a real major league regular season game on that diamond. And the Yankees lost because God's judgments are righteous and true all together. <laughs> Go Astros. So, um, when you think about our world today, what do you see when you watch the news? You see heartbreak, you see danger, you see violence, you see a looming war in Eastern Europe right now that has no good purpose at all. And you think about the lives that are just about to be overturned, not, not just the tens of thousands of people who are going to die if that war breaks out, but Nations all over the earth, peace will be unsettled through it. You think about other situations all around our world and right here in America, and, and even as Christians, we have this yearning in our heart that says, okay, God, when are you gonna do something? When are you gonna step in? We picture angelic warriors descending and, and you know, driving away powerful uh, forces that are causing evil and, and punishing the evildoers and, and lifting up those who are hurting, and, and it never happens. You know, the next time we see angelic warriors descending from heaven, Jesus is going to be leading that army. That's going to be the end of the age. So instead, yeah, amen, exactly. We look forward to that. But in, in the meantime, God's answer is, what am I doing? I'm, I'm building something. I'm building a temple that'll draw people in. I'm building a temple that'll be a bridge between heaven and earth that will get people right with me. And we think, okay, but why? That's not the way we would handle it all. How does that solve our problems? And that's what we want to look at today. As Nathan said, we're ending a series today in which we've looked at everything the Bible says about the church and what the church is meant to be. And I don't usually say this, okay? I, I don't have such a big ego that I think you have to hear every word that comes from my mouth. But this is a series which if you've missed part of it or all of it, I'm urging you to go back and listen to it. Even if you're not a member of this church, even if this is the only time you're going to be here, you need to know, why does the church exist? Why is the church important? What is our role as individual Christians as part of the church? It is the bride of Christ. It is the family of God. It is the body of Christ. It is so many things that we miss. And today we're gonna to look at how it is the new temple of God. So Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built 
as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious for whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So keep in mind, Peter grew up in Galilee, in an Israel where there was still a temple in Jerusalem. And every year, you know, his, his family would take him if they were able, for all the way from Capernaum in Galilee, where it was lush and green, all the way up north to, or I'm sorry, down south to Jerusalem, where it was de deserted and desolate. And they would make that upward trek because you're ascending as you go toward Jerusalem. You would make that pilgrimage for, for Sukkot or for, for Passover or, or for any of the other high holy days or moments when you needed to be in God's temple. And as you walked, you're seeing the land become more desolate. You're, you're, you're expending energy. You're taking days out of your life. And then, you, then imagine little Simon, his dad touches him and he says, hey, look, son, there it is. And up ahead, he would see up on a hill the highest point of the city, the Temple Mount, he'd see this gleaming structure, this beautiful temple. See, to someone like Peter, to, to someone who grew up in that culture, we have a hard time understanding the emotions that brought out in him. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in a church, you have a certain sentimentality toward that church, even the, the physical building itself. I grew up uh, going to first, uh, Hope Baptist Church outside Yoakum, Texas, little bitty church out in the country, my brother still lives near there. And so whenever I go to his house, as I'm driving away, I always make sure I drove pa drive past the church. No one's there, okay? And yet that building still means something to me because that's where I got saved. That's where I got baptized. That's where I first learned about the Lord. And some of you feel the same way about this place or, or another place. And yet it can't even compare to the way young Peter and other Jews felt about that temple. And you and I think as Americans, how we feel about the Statue of Liberty, about the Capitol building or the White House or all those national symbols of our nation. And again, roll them all into one. It wouldn't even compare to the way a Jew felt about his temple. Because to them, it was the one place on earth where God dwelt. Imagine you're a Jew in those times and you know that your nation is oppressed. You are just one more little piece of the Roman Empire. You don't have any political freedom or independence. You have no standing army. You don't, you're not known around the world for philosophy or, or, or money or, or treasure. All you have is this. There's one God in the world and he lives in the house you built in your capital city. And that was a source of pride. But it was more than that. That was the place, the only place on earth where human beings could interact with Almighty God. It was the bridge between heaven and earth, between God and man. And you knew any time of year, any time you were wrong in God's sight and you wanted to get right, you could go to the temple and a priest would make intercession for you and God would atone for your sins. He would consider your sins atoned for and you could be right with him. And so when you and I read through the Bible, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, if you haven't, you should. 
If you, this year, for instance, if you started in January and you're reading through the scriptures, if you're on the same track I am, you just got finished with Leviticus. Wasn't that fun? Okay, we're in church, so you don't have to lie. It was not fun because over and over again, you read about uh, the burnt offering and the fellowship offering and the peace offering and the free will offering and the grain offering and the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's all these details and every one has to be offered just so. And way back in Exodus, you, you look at the details of the temple and the curtain is this color and it's decorated this way and it's this many cubits wide and this many cubits long. And then there's the altar and then there's the... There's the table for the showbread. And then there's all these features of that building. And it's the only building that, where God himself was the architect and he gave the exact specifications for it. And you're reading it going, okay, why does this matter to me in 2022 in the United States? And then you find out that the priests themselves, they had to be from a particular family and they had to follow certain restrictions and they had to wear certain clothing. And even the ordinary Israelites who wanted to go in the temple, they had to guard their lives and make sure, okay, am I ritually clean? Have I had contact with a dead body? Have I, have I experienced certain health conditions that make me unclean? Have I touched certain things that make me unclean? Have I gone through the proper rituals? I mean, it's, there's so much space taken up in the Old Testament about this, and it, it makes you realize that's how important it was. This was the bridge. You didn't just stroll across the bridge into God's presence. You had to do it in just the right way. And you had to be just the right person. So again, picture young Peter looking up at that place where all of his hopes and dreams were represented. This gleaming temple that Herod the Great, one of the worst human beings who's ever lived, and yet God used him to renovate that temple and make it beautiful and gleaming and magnificent. One of the most spectacular buildings on the earth at the time. And just imagine 30 years later, when Peter is standing with Jesus, this man who he's followed for three years, who he believes to be the Messiah, and they're, they're in Jerusalem, and they think it's time for his coronation as Messiah. They don't know that in a few days he's going to be crucified. And they're walking through the temple complex, and Peter and the other disciples are saying, hey, hey, Jesus, isn't this temple awesome? Isn't it great to be a Jew? Isn't it great to be the chosen people and, and be in this magnificent temple where God dwells? And Jesus says, don't you realize this whole place is coming down? that most of you will still be alive when it happens. Not one stone will be left on another. And, and if Jesus would have punched him in the gut unexpectedly, it wouldn't have taken their breath away anymore because they couldn't imagine that God would do that. And Jesus, Jesus just a few days later or, or shortly thereafter, went into that temple and wrecked the place became a one-man riot, turning over tables and, and thrashing people with a whip he made with his own hands and driving them out. Why? Because the place, the building that God had given to the Israelites as a gift to draw all the world to himself had instead become a place where a small group of people held power and shut out others and were able to enrich themselves. And he said, this is not the purpose. What Jesus was saying through all of that is, the temple is no more. Now there's something better. The whole thing was pointing to something else. And in fact, after Jesus died and rose again, and then the Holy Spirit, 40 days later, came into those disciples and they were able to read the scriptures again for the first time with new eyes. They suddenly realized all that stuff in Leviticus, all that stuff in Exodus, all those rituals, all those requirements, the priests and the sacrifices and the temple itself, all of it pointed to Jesus. He had said it in the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He meant it. I am the fulfillment of all that stuff. 
And then in 70 AD, they saw the fulfillment of his prophecy when the Roman general Titus sacked the city of Jerusalem. One of the great humanitarian disasters of all time, tens of thousands of people died in a single day and the temple itself destroyed and it has never been rebuilt. Let me just put in a plug. If you ever have the chance to go to to Israel, if you ever have a chance, take it. Let me put it this way. Let me put it another way. If you have the financial capability and the health to travel overseas, forget Paris, forget London, forget Shanghai and Hong Kong and any other place. Those are all fine, I'm sure. But go to Jerusalem. It's like nothing else. And when you go there, the Temple Mount still exists, but there's no temple there. In the spot where the temple was, there's the Dome of the Rock, that big gold dome that you see in every picture of Jerusalem. It's it's an Islamic mosque to this day. And there has been no temple there for 2,000 years. And there will never be a temple there until Christ returns. And yet... People from all over the world come to that that last remaining section of outer wall that once circled the temple. We now call it the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. Go come there and and, and write down prayers on slips of paper and shove them into the cracks in the wall and and Orthodox Orthodox Jews stand there and pray and and bob back and forth as they pray to the Lord. And and you and I can say, "That's that's a wonderful place, but it's no more holy than wherever God's people are. Wherever God's people are, that's the temple. Wherever God's people are, that's where God is. That's where God can be met. That's where God's people exist. That's the temple today. And imagine Peter starting out, revering this place, and now years later is an old man writing and saying, we are the temple. We are the temple. In verse five, well, think about this for a moment. In in Matthew 16, Paul, uh, Peter was the one who heard Jesus say, you're my rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell itself won't prevail against it. You you know what Peter was like before. Don't you know his head swelled up when Jesus said that? Now he is all these decades later writing and saying in verse five, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, I'm the first rock but you're all living stones. And every time someone comes into the family, God adds him to that temple, adds her to that temple. All of us are building something alongside God, something that will rescue the world by the power of God and by his grace. According to verse five that we just read, there are three things true of the church. Number one, we are a spiritual house. Spiritual house, meaning it's not about the building. Again, we love the church buildings, don't we? Whenever I'm in uh, any city and we're going through, like, like yesterday in Maine, I, I love seeing the churches. Okay, what kind of church is that? I wonder how old it is. I wonder what goes on there. I love this building. This is a great, this is the best church building I've ever served in. And, and, and I'd love to go back in time 20 years and, and go up to all the people who helped decide that, that Conroe, the city of Conroe needed to shut down Main Street so we could build this atrium that connects uh, this building with the gym. And, and that's that place where every Sunday I just get to watch as the people of God just gather and mingle and enjoy one another's company. And it's beautiful. But if all that was gone... If we all showed up next Sunday and the building was just raised to the ground, we'd still be the church. The church is not a building. The church is not an event that you go to on Sunday mornings. The church is not an institution with officers and staff and programs and facilities. The church is the people of God. 
So when we say join our church, what do we mean by that? Because every Sunday I say that. I say, hey, if you want to join this church, come see me over in the Next Steps area. We'll tell you what to do. We'd love to have you. And maybe perhaps you're saying to yourself, why would I join? Well, let me just, this is going to be the worst sales pitch ever. Okay, you ready? You get no tangible benefit from joining First Baptist Church. None. You don't get a better parking place. In fact, we won't let you park in the visitor parking anymore. You don't get better seating. Your, your pew doesn't become more comfortable. You don't get special access to special events, insider stuff. You don't become a VIP. Put it this way. If you come up to me after church today or see me in the street this week and you say, Jeff, I need you to pray for me. I'm struggling. I'm not going to say, wait a second, are you a member of my church? Because I only pray for members. No, that's not the way it works. You get no tangible benefit. Can I be any clearer? There's no, there's no reason to join our church for any good that's going to accrue to you in any tangible sense. You're not going to get a better job. You're not going to get a prettier girlfriend. You're not going to get more friends and you're not going to get a, a better reputation or make more money. What you're doing when you join a church, this church or any church, is you're making a commitment. You're saying, okay, I am choosing from this day forward to commit to this church family. I'm going to show up every Sunday that I'm physically able to be there. I'm going to show up because God loves the praises of his people and my voice matters. I'm going to care about what's happening in that church. I'm going to pray for it. I'm going to use the gifts and the talents that God gave me. That's what the last two Sundays were about and, and, and perform the role that God set apart for me in the body of Christ. I'm going to tithe of my offerings and, and resources and help the church accomplish its mission. The only benefit you get is the knowledge that you're obeying God because that's what every Christian should do. You get, you get the same benefit that an that a eagle gets from soaring or a dolphin gets from swimming. You're doing what God made you to do. We are a spiritual house. Secondly, we are a holy priesthood. You know, the interesting thing is Baptists used to be known for this doctrine. If you, if you, if you asked non-Baptist Christians, oh, what are the Baptists all about? hundred years ago, they would have said, well, they believe real strongly in the priesthood of all believers. And yet if I went around the room, I, I'm just, I, I, I shudder to think how few people would know what priesthood of all believers even means. Most people, most Baptists, I think would probably say, well, I'm Baptist, I'm not Catholic, we don't have priests. And that's not what this is about. In the Old Testament, the priests were the ones who stood between the people and God. A priest was the only one who could walk into the Holy of Holies. Remember, inside that temple, there was this massive curtain, this thick curtain that separated the place where God dwelt, the Holy of Holies, from the rest of the temple. And only the high priest could go in there and only on the Day of Atonement. And you remember what happened when Jesus died? When the moment came when he said, it is finished and his life left him? There was this unseen hand that tore that curtain in two from top to bottom. And that was God's symbolic way of saying there's no more boundaries, there's no more barriers for all who want to come to me through grace, through the shed blood of the cross, you can come in. Last Wednesday night in my, in my study on Galatians, I, I shared this quote from Tim Keller. He says, there's only one person who can knock on the bedroom door of the king at three in the morning and ask for a cup of water, and that's his child. And that's what you are. You have access that no one else has access, that you don't deserve, that we could never earn. You have access to the Lord. So anytime you pray to him, he hears. And anytime you open his word, he is speaking if you have ears to hear. But it's not just access. The priests didn't, didn't just have access. They had responsibilities. They were responsible for 
reconciling the people to God. They were responsible for making sure when someone was out of fellowship with him, they went to them and and interceded for them and, and made sure they got right with God. And that's our job. That's our job. Look at, uh, I, I want to read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Paul writes, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling himself to, to the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Remember last week, if you were with us, we talked about what is the role of the church staff, the called ministers. Because a lot of of us think that's their job, that, okay, there's all these lost people in Montgomery County. This is why we call the pastor. This is why we have a student minister and all these other staff people. We pay tithes and we pray for them so they can go out and win lost souls to Jesus. No. Yes, I'm responsible for the people God brought into my life and so is Alan, Michael, and Kathy and everybody else on our staff. But remember what it said last week in Ephesians 4? It said God gave the church officers and leaders. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is why our mission, our vision for the future of First Baptist Church is 10,000 transforming relationships by the year 2030. Because every one of you knows people. Every one of you has friends, has coworkers, has neighbors, has relatives, has enemies. People you can't stand. And all of those people God has brought into your life for a purpose. You are their priest. You're the one who is called upon to reconcile them to God as best you can. Well, I'm not qualified, you might say. I know, neither am I. The only qualification you really need is the story of the transformation Christ has brought about in your life. And you just need to be a priest. Just need to care about them, love them, pray for them, look for opportunities to show them love. Look for opportunities to be an influence on them. And you might say, well, that's a silly plan. Why didn't God just send someone more qualified, more educated, more, more equipped? Well, here's why. If you're looking for a new car, your car is on its last legs. You've got to jump start it every time you get in it. You know you need a new car. You've seen commercials on TV that tell you this car is faster and this car is prettier and this car has better resale value. Uh, you've seen billboards. You've heard your, your favorite uh, celebrities endorse this car or that car. But you've got this friend who you trust and you've watched them. And every time they buy a car, it's the same brand. And, and you notice that their cars last longer than yours. And, and they seem happier with their cars than you are with yours. And, and so... You're not going to care about what the latest NFL star or the latest you know, uh, movie star says you should buy. And you're not going to care about the billboard or all the commercials. You're going to trust in what you've seen work. And that's why the priesthood of all believers is God's plan. Because, listen, you could, tr- you could, sell out, uh, you could rent out Moorhead Stadium and invite the whole community to come listen to me preach. And I think you'd be really disappointed at how few people would show up but those same people who would never come to a preaching service, they know you and they see your life. 
They see that Jesus has saved you. They see that you love them in a way that nobody else loves them and you forgive things that they don't think a human being should be able to forgive and and that you are able to handle the things that life throws at you in a way they wish they could. And over the course of time, they're gonna start to want what you have, especially if you're intentional, especially if you're in prayer, especially if you're looking for opportunities. That's what it means to be the priesthood of all believers. Are you doing your work as a priest. Number three, we offer spiritual sacrifices. I say spiritual because that's what the text says, and also because we don't offer physical sacrifices anymore. The time has ended where we kill something to worship God, which must disappoint those of you who have a dog in your neighbor's house at three in the morning that barks all night, and you're like, I would love to sacrifice Fido to the Lord right now, but if you do that, you can't say you're doing it for the Lord, okay? You just can't. But here's what a spiritual sacrifice is. It's anything you bring to God from a heart of worship. So for instance, Hebrews 13, 15 says, the praises of God's people are sacrifices acceptable to him. When we sing on Sunday mornings, when we sing together, it is beautiful in the Lord's ears. And you may say, well, I'm a terrible singer. And you're probably right, but that doesn't matter because if you're singing from a heart of worship, it sounds beautiful to God's ears. You may sound like a cat being dragged tail first through a sausage grinder, and God's gonna think it's beautiful if it comes from a heart of worship. So in the words of of my friend, who's a, a worship minister, if you can't sing well, at least sing loud, right? It's beautiful in God's sight. Romans 12.1 says that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So that means anything we do physically to obey him. If we deny ourselves something the world says we should have, but God says no. If we do something that God says to do, that is a sacrifice to God that God looks at and says, thank you, I know that you love me. Romans 15.16 says the people we bring to Christ are spiritual sacrifices. So all of your transforming relationships, when you fill out one of those cards and let us know, I'm praying for this person to be saved. I'm helping this child with his homework. I'm I'm reaching out to this person who's grieving a loss. Every one of those, that's an offering of praise to God. And here's the really good news, okay? When I was a kid growing up, I was into a lot of stuff, like most kids. I I played sports, I was in plays, I was in in concerts, and every one of those things that I did, my parents were always there. And not once did I get done with that play, that game, that, that concert, and hear my mom and dad say, man, that was the worst thing I have ever seen in my life. We, we, we should have stayed home and watched reruns of the worst show on TV or stabbed ourselves in the eyes with sticks. It would have been better than spending our, eye, our, 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 our last hour in the way we did. No, they didn't say that. Everything I did, my parents were proud of me as long as I did it w- with all my heart. And that's the way God looks at us. He looks at us through the eyes of a father because our, our spiritual gifts of sacrifice are beautiful in his sight even if we don't think they're worthy. He's not looking for performance. He's just looking for a heart of worship and a desire to please him. And you will, and that's good news. Now, think about this for just a moment. When you think about it, every human being on earth right now is trying to build something. Maybe you're trying to build a resume. Maybe you're trying to build a career. Maybe you're trying to build a reputation so others will like you or esteem you or be impressed with you. Maybe you're trying to build a fortune. 
Maybe you're trying to build a, a, a series of events that will bring you pleasure and will make you happy, but everybody's trying to build something. And almost everyone, including most Christians, they're building something that's not gonna last. We're like a nation full of people that spend all their time building houses of cards. You ever built a house of cards? It's very diverting. I mean, you, you can focus on that, but it doesn't last. Good stiff wind blows it over. Now, maybe you're house of cards is seven feet and mine's only five feet, but eventually somebody's going to walk through, somebody's little brother's going to walk through and kick it down, or somebody's going to open a window and the wind's going to blow it down. Imagine a kingdom where that's all people do is build their houses of cards, and the king comes along and says, listen, there's people lost and dying and hurting, and I want to build something new. I want to build a new temple, a temple that will last, inside which everyone who comes in will find joy, will find security, will find peace, will find fulfillment and love, and it will never end. Do you want to come help me build that? Set aside your cards and come help me build something that will last. And some of you can remember the day that you walked into that temple for the first time and you became a new person. Jesus calls it being born again. Some of you remember that day that you came into God's family and, and from that day on, your life was about something bigger than yourself and, and you served and you served with great joy knowing that everything that I do matters, matters eternally. Some of you have never experienced that. You're still building a house of cards. You need to recognize that. No matter how much work you put into it, it'll, it'll fall down at, at the least little disturbance and it will. You need to know that in just a moment, after we sing a couple more songs, I'm gonna be standing outside in that Next Steps area. And if, if you don't have that experience, that knowledge that you are part of the family of God, part of his new temple, come see me. Or if you wanna join this church, this, this becomes the, the branch of God's temple you wanna help build, come see me. But for many of us who are members of this church, let's just be honest. There comes a time in our walk with God where we stop building and we reach back into our back pocket and pull out that deck of cards and go back to building our little card house again. We were about the work of God. Now we're about our career. Now we're about our hobbies. Now we're about our fortune, our reputation, etc. And for some of you, maybe it's time to just knock all that down and say, okay, I'm coming back to the things that matter. I'm coming back to the things that last. See, why do we do that? Jesus in this passage is called the cornerstone. And most of us don't get that because we're not builders. And even if we're builders, we don't build with stone. But in that world, the cornerstone was the first stone you laid. And it had to be shaped exactly right. And however you oriented that stone dictated the, rest, the, the direction the rest of the building would be oriented because every stone had to fit with that cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of the new temple. We are built upon him and he is the stone that the whole world rejected. He was rejected for us. So when we come to him, we don't say, okay, I'm gonna join this building process so you'll be impressed with me and you'll receive me. No, he's already done the work. All we have to do is join in. We don't do it because we want him to trust us or believe in us or love us because he already does. We do it because, because you died for me, Jesus, because you brought me in, I owe you everything and I will devote my life to building this temple to your glory and so that others might be saved because that's the answer to the world's problems. The gospel is the only thing that brings people together, that sets people free. And when you start building on that temple, that's when your life matters. That's when you experience life as it was meant to be lived.